So if you've got your copy of the scriptures, I would invite you to open to Romans chapter 16. This is our third week in chapter 16, so we're closing out the book. We're closing out this chapter. We noted that there are four sections in chapter 16. First, we looked at verses 1 and 2 where we saw the Paul's commendation of Phoebe, the servant or the, the deacon of the church of Centria. And then last week, we looked at verses 3 through 16, which is this culmination of Paul's personal greetings of love and thanksgiving to people that he knows and loves in the city of Rome, in the church there in Rome. This morning, we're going to look at verses 17 through 23, where we see a final warning from Paul as he closes out this letter. He's got one more warning he wants to issue to them, and it's really, it's a stronger warning than any other warning we've seen in this whole letter. And then next week, Lord willing, we will finish out this letter by looking at Paul's closing doxology. Uh, My plan, at least, according to God's will, is after that to uh, do a summary wrap-up, to preach a one-Sunday kind of summary of Paul's letter to uh, the Romans. And so pray for me as I put that together. I just feel like that would be encouraging for us after being in the weeds of the nuts and bolts for the last three years to back up and look at this whole letter as it was meant to be read from 30,000 feet and see it as a letter to a group of believers. If you're wondering what's coming after that, we're going back to Genesis. Um, if you've been with us at New Branch for over three years, you know that Prior to diving into our study of Romans, we were in Genesis, and we stopped at chapter 11. So we covered uh, the story of creation, we, sto- we covered the story of Noah, uh, we covered uh, the Tower of Babel, all of that good stuff, but we stopped just short of the patriarchs in chapter 12, and so we took a bit of a breather from our study in Genesis. Well, now it's been a three-year breather, so we're, ba- we're going to go back to Genesis. We're going to pick up in chapter 12, where we're going to see the story of Abraham, all the patriarchs, Abraham, I- uh, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, all of those, so some great stories, some great content that is coming. I would encourage you uh, over the next uh, three or four weeks, as we get ready to dive back into that, to begin reading Genesis uh, just in your own private Bible reading time. I would encourage you to... Maybe set a challenge for yourself to read the whole book, to read verses 1 through 50. Um, If you'd like, you can go back. Uh, We have all of the sermons from chapters 1 through 11 online. You can go back and listen to all of those. But I do intend to do a summary, kind of catch up on what we covered through that time, but uh, start anew in chapter 12. But this morning, we're still in Romans. We've got a little bit left to cover. We're in verses 17 through 23, where Paul issues this warning against false teachers. And so follow along in your copy of the scriptures this morning, verses 17 through 23. Church, this is the breath of God. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace 
will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greets you. Let's pray. God, what a privilege, what a joy it's been this morning to be in your house with your people. Thank you so much for the privilege of being restored as a worshiper. None of us deserve that. None of us can earn the joy of being reconciled as a worshiper of you, our sovereign God. But we thank you for it. We ask, Father, that you would continue us in a spirit of worship as we turn to your word. We thank you so much for this book. We thank you for preserving it throughout the ages so that we can trust and know with assurance that what we hold in our hands is your breath. And so because it is your breath, we ask that you would speak to us from it, that you would use it not just to make us smarter about what is in it, but so that our lives would be transformed to the likeness of Jesus, so that you'd be glorified through our lives individually and corporately as a church. We ask that you do this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. So as we said, this passage, verses 17 through 23, is a passage where Paul warns about the danger for the church in Rome that there's some false teachers that are out there, and you need to be watchful for that. You need to be careful about that. Uh, it's a warning about false teaching, and we're going to get to that in verses 17 through 20. But what I want us to look at first are the last three verses, verses 21 through 23. I want to start there. I want to start at the end. Because in looking at verses 21 through 23, it's going to help us to understand the context for this warning that we find in verses 17 through 20. So three quick observations about verses 21 through 23. The first is quite obvious, and that is that what we see here is a collection of greetings from those who are with Paul to those who are in Rome. And so he lists eight different uh, folks who are with him in Corinth as he's writing this letter to the church in Rome. And they, just as Paul extended his greetings, he, they want to extend their greetings to those who are in Rome. So that's the first thing that we notice, and that's going to help us understand the context. Two other brief um, observations that I think are important as we're seeking to understand Scripture. Uh, the, the first is in verse 22 where this guy Tertius is introduced to us, and he speaks to us in the first person pronoun, I. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter. Did that throw any of you for a little bit of a loop when I read that? I thought it said in chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle to the church in Rome. So I thought Paul wrote this. Did Paul write this or did Tertius write this? Yes. So I'm going to introduce you to a, to a word here that uh, you can use in Balderdash. How many of you have ever played Balderdash? Okay. All right. So there's a few game players out there. We played it on our mission trip. I won't tell you what happened. You need to go on a mission trip for that. But Tertius here is what's known as an amanuensis. Amanuensis. So isn't that an awesome word? We have no idea what it means. I'll give you the definition, right? 
So next time, you're, at some point, someone in this room is going to play balderdash, and that word's going to come up, and you're going to know the definition, and you're going to impress some people. So it's someone who is an assistant who takes dictation for someone else. And Tertius is an amanuensis for the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul wrote this book in that these are his words coming from the Holy Spirit. But Tertius is the one who penned them. He, he wrote them down. Now, we don't know how much of this Tertius was the amanuensis for Paul. Perhaps it was the whole thing. Perhaps it was just part of it. Maybe it was just the very ending here. We, we don't know for sure. But part of it, he penned the words, but Paul is the one who dictated the words to him. So don't worry. Verse 22 in no way undermines the overwhelming and almost unanimous consensus that the Apostle Paul is the writer, the author of the book of Romans, the letter to the Rome, Roman church. And then the last observation that I want us to note here is not so much something that we see, but something that we don't see. And that is, where is verse 24, right? It goes from verse 23 to verse 25. Unless you're reading from the King James Version or the New King James Version, or unless you're reading from the New American Standard, and then the New American Standard puts it in parentheses and puts a footnote at the bottom that says, most manuscripts do not include verse 24. Most modern translations in the English, like the ESV that I'm reading from, or the NIV, or, or many others like them, do not include verse 23. Why is that? Are they trying to hide something there? Or, or excuse me, don't, they don't include verse 24. They're not trying to hide anything. This is one of those situations where the manuscripts on which the translations are based are not in 100% agreement. The King James Version, written in 1611, or produced in 1611, was based on a Greek manuscript that was available at the time. And the Greek manuscripts that were available at the time, most of them included verse 24 here. But since that time, since 1611, more manuscripts have been discovered by archaeologists. Older manuscripts. And because they're older and and closer to the original autographs, they're considered by Bible scholars to be more accurate, more reliable, because less time transpired from the original autographs to the manuscripts that were copied. And though, and in those older manuscripts that have now been discovered, those Greek manuscripts, the, most of them do not include verse 24. And so it just depends on which Greek manuscript you're going to be basing this on. Verse 24 in those translations that do include it, say, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, amen. Which you'll note is essentially a repetition of verse 20. So the question is not, did Paul say this? But the question is, did Paul repeat it three verses later in verse 24? And the oldest, most reliable, to today the most trustworthy Greek manuscripts say that no, probably not. It was not included in the original text. Now, why do I even mention that? Well, the reason is because this, this is important for us to understand. When you're reading the Bible in your own quiet times, when you're, when you're encountering the Word of God, you're reading through the Word of God, and you run across something like this, and you think, hey, the verse is gone. What, what's, what's happening? Is somebody trying to hide something? Is somebody, where, where did it go? We need to remember that there is always a very good and scholarly interpretive reason for that not being there. 
And the reason behind all of this, the intention is to preserve the accuracy of the translation of the Bible. Not to hide something, not to, not to um, deceive anyone by hiding some kind of verse, but simply to understand what was the original autograph. So when you see these sorts of things in your own, own Bible reading, don't, don't let that lead you to question the reliability and the trustworthy of Scripture. Scripture is trustworthy, and there is an enormous amount of manuscript evidence to back it up, more than any other ancient document out there. And there is tons and reams of scholarly evidence to back up that what we have is reliable and trustworthy and is the infallible Word of God. So that's just an aside. You didn't have to pay for that. That was free. So why do I go to the end of this passage to cover verses 21 through 23 First, it's because I want us to understand the context of this warning that we find in verses 17 through 20. What came prior to 17 through 20? What what came prior to this very concerned warning by the Apostle Paul? What came prior to that was this list of greetings, this this list of people that Paul loved. He's expressing his his love for them and, and his unity with them, his relational connection to them. What comes after verses 17 through 20? What we just saw, a collection of greetings, an expression from people who are with Paul, their love and their thankfulness and their relational connection to the people in Rome. So the context of this chapter is all about relationships and and loving one another and how that love for one another within the church brings about unity in the body of Christ. And in the midst of that whole context, that whole section about love and unity and relationships, Paul is concerned about doctrinal purity within the church. Now, there are some who say that we shouldn't emphasize doctrine because doctrine divides. Doctrine divides, and, that's, and, then, and division is a bad thing, right? So, so we need to avoid anything and everything and everyone who divides. Why? Because they would say that relational unity is what is most ultimate. And so anything that, that creates division is to be avoided at all costs. And so if doctrine divides, then we should just stay away from doctrine. Or maybe we should at least go light on doctrine. In its extreme, this position says that relational unity must be pursued at all costs, even if it means compromising doctrinal purity. Now, the other side of the horse is, are those who say that relational unity is not ultimate. What is ultimate is doctrinal purity. And we should stand against anything and everything and everyone who jeopardizes our doctrinal purity. And the extreme of this position says that doctrinal purity must be pursued at all costs, even if it means compromising relational unity. And so the way it goes in our culture, for example, is it's either one or the other. You either major on one to the exclusion of the other, or you major on the other to the exclusion of the first. You can't have both, our culture says. But that's not what Paul says. But what we see right in the middle of this passage on relational unity and loving one another in the body is this strong warning against false teachers who might cause the church to compromise their doctrine. So that's the 
setting that Paul sets here. That's the, the stage that's been set for the warning verses 17 through 20. And what we learn from the setting of that stage is that relational unity in the church is important, but not at the, at the expense of doctrinal purity. In fact, one could even pose this question based on Paul's context here. How can you have relational unity if it is not based on doctrinal purity? If you don't have any unity around your doctrine. Does doctrine divide? Yes. Absolutely. Of course it does. But it should only divide to the extent that it identifies the foundational essentials of orthodox biblical Christianity. Those things around which we will unite. So it's not one or the other. It's both and. It's a balance between the two. And Paul gives direction here to the church in Rome in verses 17 through 20 about how to navigate that balance with relational unity and doctrinal purity. So let me give you an outline of verses 17 through 22. We're just going to follow verse by verse. In verse 17, we're going to see two commands to the church about false teachers. What do we do with them? In verses uh, 18 and 19, Paul's going to give us three reasons why those commands are so important. And then we're going to close in verse 20 with one promise of victory. So let's start first with verse 17 and see two commands that Paul gives to the church with respect to false teachers. In verse 17 he says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. So he's talking about false teachers here. He says these these things are contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. And so he gives us two commands. Number one, watch out for them. Number two, avoid them. To watch out for them literally means to keep your eye on them. The Greek word there is skopeo. It's, It's the word from which we get our word for telescope or microscope. It means to be on the lookout for them. Be scoping them out. Be be put in your eye on, be watchful and alert for them. It's also the word that, that uh, is the root of one of the New Testament offices of the church, and that of overseer, that is episkopos. Their job is to oversee. So the idea here is to look out for these false teachers. Be alert. Don't be lazy. Be watchful and put an eye on them. Be watching for them. Paul says that these false teachers are dangerous because they cause divisions and create obstacles. So that's the effect of the false teachers. The cause is that there is a potential for the church to be exposed to false teaching. Or there may be false teachers in the church or false teachers that the church is listening to or exposed to in some way. That's the cause. The effect is that they introduce division and create obstacles in the church. Now, how does that work? How do false teachers, how does false teaching, first of all, cause division in the body of Christ? Well, it could be a number of ways. The first and most obvious of which would be there are some people who believe the false teaching and there are some people who don't believe the false teaching. So unless everyone believes the false teaching or everyone rejects the false teaching, there will be division simply because of that. But in addition to that, There can also be division because not all false teaching is uniform. There are many flavors of false teachers and false teaching. And so we should ask, well, which one are we talking about? For example, with respect to the Trinity, 
There are lots of different varieties. There are a myriad of varieties of heresies and false teachings with respect to the Trinity and how we understand it and if it even exists and how we are to explain it. There are a number of different varieties of false teachings. So which one is it? So there can be, there can be division even within different false teachings. But then thirdly, once Scripture stops being the arbiter of truth for us, then what is the arbiter of truth within a church? Often it becomes the person who has the strongest or the most influential personality within the church to argue for their version of truth. See, if we migrate in the least from a complete dependence on the word of God, the scriptures, this is part of why we preach and we teach verse by verse straight from the Bible. Because if we migrate from a complete dependence on the scriptures, then the only way to convince more people to believe your version of the truth is to be more convincing than the next person, or more influential, or perhaps to have a stronger personality, or maybe even to exhibit a greater degree of pastoral abuse. So then you can just bully people into believing your version of the truth. So false teachers can cause divisions in the body of Christ in a number of ways. But Paul says that they're also dangerous because they create obstacles. They create obstacles. That word for obstacles here is that Greek word scandalon. We've seen that before. We saw that back in chapter 14 when Paul was warning the, the believers in Rome. He says, I, I don't want you to be a stumbling block or a hindrance for your brothers and sisters in Christ. And you might recall that when we were in that passage, we we looked at that word scandalon and we talked about how that word refers to, it's the, it's the trigger in a trap. It's that trigger in a trap. It's that, it's that temptation that lures us in and entices us in until the trap closes around us. False teaching does this as well. It's pleasing to the ears. It's something that appeals to something in us that is our sin nature. It satisfies our most banal desires. And then when we least expect it, it traps us in its grip. Again, the prosperity gospel fits this description. Who doesn't want to hear that Jesus came and died not just to rescue us from our sins, and the judgment that we deserve, but he also came to rescue us from illness and poverty. I mean, who doesn't want that, right? None of us want to be in poverty. None of us desire to have illnesses or diseases. And so this appeals to something in us. That sounds like a good deal to us. But if we begin to, begin to buy into that heresy, then it becomes a trap. It becomes a scandal on. Because now, am I following Jesus because he's king and because he's Lord and because I love him and because he's graciously saved me from what I deserve? Or am I following him because of the promise of trinkets and goodies? And what about when those trinkets and goodies don't come? Am I still going to follow him? So false teaching becomes a, a, a trap because it lures us away from singular Faith in Christ alone becomes a trap. So false teachers are very dangerous, which is why Paul says to watch out for them. 
But how do we know who they are? How, how, how can we identify the false teachers? Paul tells us they cause divisions and create obstacles that are contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. It's very important for us to note here that Paul is referencing a fixed body of doctrine. Note the definite article in front of the word doctrine. It is not just doctrine. It is the doctrine. The doctrine that you were taught. Back in Romans chapter 6, verse 17, he referred to it as the standard of teaching to which you were committed. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, he calls it the pattern of sound words. And he also called it in that passage the good deposit, the good deposit that was entrusted to you. In Jude chapter 3, Jude calls it the faith, the faith once delivered to all the saints for which we must contend. And Dr. Luke refers to it in Acts chapter 20, verse 27, as the whole counsel of God. Here, Paul calls it in verse 17, the doctrine that you have been taught. So what is the doctrine you have been taught? What, what is the standard of teaching, the pattern of sound words, the faith once delivered to all the saints? What is that? It's very important for us to know what is exactly, what exactly is included in this and what is not. And it's important because this is that which we divide over. Which, by the way, that's what that second command from verse 17 means. It means to divide. When Paul says, avoid them, he means divide them from you or divide yourself from them. Separate yourself from them. Avoid them. Now, obviously, we don't divide over every little nuance of doctrine. We divide over, over those things that are essential to orthodox biblical Christianity. A relatively unknown 17th century German theologian by the name of Rupert Meldinius is in, not famous. He's not famous because most people think that Augustine said this, but the, the quote is famous. He wrote in German, this is translated into English, in the essentials we have unity, in the non-essentials we have liberty, and in all things we have charity or we have love because we're, we're to love everyone regardless of how vehemently they disagree with us on points of doctrine. We're even called to love our enemies as Paul said in Romans chapter 12. But he says, in the essentials we have unity. In other words, in those things that are essential to that standard of teaching, to the good deposit entrusted to you, the faith wants to deliver to all the saints, the, the doctrine that you were taught about, we have unity in those things. Those things that if they were not affirmed, Christianity as we know it would fall like a house of cards. In those things we have unity. In other words, we agree on them. We agree on those things with full conviction. We like to say in here, we talk about things that we hold with a closed hand versus an open hand. These are the things that we hold with a closed hand. These are the things of primary importance, the essentials. And furthermore, if someone teaches something contrary to those essentials, then we will separate ourselves from them. We will divide from them. We will avoid them as Paul tells us to do here. But not everything is essential. Some things are non-essential. 
essential, the essential things are things like what we believe about the Bible, that it's an infallible, that it's inerrant, that it's authoritative, that it is sufficient, all of that. The things that are essential include things like the the nature and character of God, the nature and character of Jesus, the nature and character of the Holy Spirit, the nature and character of man, what we believe about the gospel, what we believe about salvation, and so forth. The things that are are non-essential are things like eschatology and and some of the finer points of, of, of end times and what happens when and in what order. Those things are not essential to biblical orthodox Christianity. There is liberty there. We can have an open-handedness with respect to those things. But the essential things we hold with a closed hand. This is one of the important jobs of the elders to help the church to navigate what are those things that are a part of the essentials and what are those things that are the non-essentials. And the document that defines that for us as a church is our statement of faith. We've alluded a number of times to the fact that uh, we are in the process of updating our constitution as a church. Uh, We've been working on it for a number of months and we've got still a long ways to go. But this is part of it. And our statement of faith needs to be updated. Why? Well, because there are things that... We need to define our belief about that we never even considered needing to define our belief about eight to ten years ago. And certainly not 12 years ago when we started as a church. For example, gender and human sexuality. It's not something that was originally covered as part of our essentials in our statement of faith. But it is something that is obviously very divisive in our culture and also divisive in the broader church And so when we roll that out to you, we are going to be proposing to add a statement about a biblical understanding of gender and human sexuality. And if that passes, furthermore, anyone who teaches something that is contrary to what we say about what we believe about gender and human sexuality, we will divide from them. We will separate from them. We will avoid them, as Paul tells us to do. But on the flip side... There's also a phrase that we're probably going to propose to be removed from the statement of faith. There's a statement in our current uh, edition of the statement of faith that more narrowly defines us with respect to eschatology than we're comfortable with in a statement that is to be listing our essentials. And so we're going to be proposing to remove that statement. All of the other essentials about eschatology and end times are still there, but that statement is going to be removed to allow for more liberty on those non-essential kinds of items because we believe that to be a non-essential point of doctrine. So Paul says you'll be able to identify these false teachers by their teaching, by their doctrinal teaching. They are dangerous to the church and you'll know who they are because they're teaching something that is contrary to the doctrine that you were taught. Now, if that's the case, if you're going to know them by the doctrine that they teach, then we simply have no option, any of us, myself or you, none of us have any any option of saying doctrine doesn't matter. Because if we're lazy about doctrine, either in the pulpit or in the home, if we're lazy about doctrine, then we become easy prey for those who would twist the scriptures. And so Paul's commands here in verse 17 are, are very clear. 
be on the lookout. Be watchful. Be alert. And when you identify them as teaching something that is contrary to the doctrine that you were taught, to those essentials, avoid them. Separate from them. Divide from them. But then he goes on in verses 18 and 19, and he gives us three reasons why these commands are so important. What we see in verses 18 and 19 are, first of all, the motivation of the false teachers. What's their motive? Secondly, their method. And then thirdly, we're going to see Paul's concern about the probable naivety of the Roman Christians and, and what to do about that. So first of all, the motivation of the false teachers. Verse, eight begins, verse 18 begins with this. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. Literally, they serve their own bellies. So what is their motivation? Their motiva- motivation is not worshiping Jesus. Their motivation is not serving Christ. Their motivation is themselves. Their motivation is their own appetites and desires for whatever. Their motivation is serving self. They are self-serving prophets. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul, Paul is speaking about false prophets, and he refers to them as enemies of the cross. And he goes on in verse 19 of Philippians chapter 3 to say this about them, about the false teachers. He says, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Their God is their belly. Again, one of the most predominant, one of the most dangerous false teachings affecting, infecting the church of Jesus Christ in America and around the world today is what's known as the prosperity gospel, which is not a gospel. It is not good news. It is a false gospel because it brings absolutely no good news because it's a lie, as Paul warns the Galatians churches. And the teachers of that health, wealth, and prosperity gospel those who teach that false gospel, their motivation is often self-serving, whether it's money or fame or a larger ministry or whatever, whether it's a private jet or a larger arena to worship in or whether it's a bigger book deal or TV deal or whatever. Their God is their stomach, as Paul says. They are not serving Christ. They are serving self. Self-advancement becomes their idol. This is spiritual idolatry. This is replacing God with self. That's their motivation, to worship and serve self. What about their methodology? Paul gives us their methodology in the second part of verse 18, where he says, And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. So their methodology is deception, and they go about deceiving through what Paul calls smooth talk and flattery. The word smooth talk literally just means pleasant speech, fair words. That's what that word means. In other words, these are words that the naive want to hear. They're the words that tickle itching ears, as Paul warns Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4. The word for flattery literally means words of blessing. Now, who doesn't want words of blessing spoken over them, right? We all want words of blessing spoken over us. What can possibly be wrong with that? When I read this, I, I, what, what came to mind to me was that scene out of 
the first Rocky movie, the best Rocky movie, when he's on the way to fight Apollo Creed and he stops by the church and he calls up for Father, Father Carmine. Remember that? Father, Father Carmine, throw down a blessing to me. Throw a blessing over me. And, and what did he want? He wanted to survive. He wanted to win. He wanted to not get knocked out by Apollo Creed. He wanted that blessing. It's not wrong. We all want words of blessing spoken over us, but church, sometimes... What we need, the, the, the lesson that we need, the word that we need from the scriptures is not necessarily a word of blessing, but a word of challenge and a word of rebuke. This, this reminds me of the prophecy in, uh, of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet who spoke the, the, the words of God to Jerusalem, over Jerusalem, over the southern kingdom, and it was prophecy of impending doom and destruction. Judgment is coming for you, Judah. Judgment is coming for you. But he was a weeping prophet because not a whole lot of people listened. And there were a lot of other prophets and priests and teachers who were saying, no, no, don't worry, everything's fine. And he speaks out against that through God's prophecy in Jeremiah 6, verses 13 through 14. He says, for from the least to the greatest of them, he's talking about the Israelites in in the southern kingdom, From the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain, and from prophet to priest, so he's including the leaders and the teachers here, from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. In other words, everyone's out for themselves. As Paul would say, their God is their belly. They are out for serving their own appetites, not the Lord. Even the teachers and the leaders. And then he says this in verse 14. Powerful words. They have healed. He's talking about the the leaders, the teachers, the prophets and the priests who are teaching the people. They have healed the wound of my people lightly. Saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. What's the wound of my people? What's the wound of God's people in this setting? It is the wound that they have no peace with God. It is the wound that judgment is coming upon them because of their disobedience to God, because of their spiritual idolatry, their spiritual adultery, giving in to the gods of Canaan instead of the God of Yahweh. And so the wound of the people is that they have no peace with God. But he says here, these prophets healed that wound lightly, meaning not at all. Because their remedy for that room, for that wound, is just to keep preaching peace. When in fact there is no peace, in fact there is judgment that is coming. When there is a, a definitive lack of peace with God, it is bad leadership. Not to mention false teaching. To speak words of blessing over them and say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. The motivation for doing this, as we've already established, is self-serving. Nobody likes a teacher who preaches the truth, especially when the truth means bad news. So the false teacher wants people to like him. And so, what does he do? He lies and he deceives through smooth talk and flattery. But then Paul tells us that false teachers use this methodology of deception Primarily because it works, and specifically because it works on the naive, or the simple, the unsuspecting. 
the end of verse 18, he says, By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. The word for naive here literally means the simple or the unsuspecting. In some places, it's translated as the innocent, meaning the guileless, those who are unstained. But here, Paul is referring to those who are unsuspecting and naive. And so, he has a further challenge to them in verse 19. He says, for your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Paul says, your, 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 your obedience is known to all. You're famous for your obedience to Jesus. And so you need to be doubly vigilant to make sure that you're watching out for and avoid, avoiding false teaching. Because if Satan can trip you up, if Satan can bring you down, then all the more damage will be done to the reputation of Christ because you are famous for your obedience. It's a word of warning there for us. Paul also says that their obedience brings him great joy. He says, I rejoice over you. Why? Because your obedience is known to everyone. It's known to all. I rejoice over That's what Paul rejoices over. Paul had never even visited this church. Paul didn't have any hand in starting this church. But he rejoiced over this church because they were famous for their obedience to Jesus. And just parenthetically, I wonder what causes us to rejoice over churches. What causes you to, when, when someone talks to you about a church that they are a part of, what, what, what might cause you to rejoice about that church? Is it they, they have a big building? Is it because they have a large budget? Is there, is there because they've got a lot of program ministries that they can offer? Is it because they've got a real dynamic speaker? Is it because they have a real high quality of music? Or is it because they have a radical obedience to Jesus Christ? That's what Paul rejoiced over. What do we rejoice over about churches? But then Paul also includes the remedy for being naive in verse 19. He says, I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. This reminds me of Paul's instructions to his disciples when he sends them out to drive out unclean spirits and preach the gospel in Matthew chapter 10. He says, behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So... Be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Paul puts it here, be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. In other words, the antidote to the naivete regarding the deception of the false teachers is to be wise as to what is good, to be wise as to what is true and right. In other words, don't settle for superficial Christianity. Don't settle for what's on the surface. Take doctrine seriously. Seek to truly learn about the faith that you say that you believe. Become so familiar with the truth that when you are confronted with false teaching, you will not be naive. And you will not fall victim to that deception. Instead, you will be wise and you will recognize the false teaching for what it is. Now, I'm not saying that we all need to go out and get our theology degrees, but I am saying that we're all theologians. Now, I am saying that doctrine is 
important. Now, it may not, may not be the thing that's, that's most exciting to you in your life, and it may not be the thing that gets you up in the morning. It may not be the last thing that you think about when you put your head on the pillow at night, but it is desperately important for us, and it ought to be something that we, as followers of Jesus, who love him genuinely and deeply, take seriously. Does doctrine divide? Absolutely it does, but it also unites. Doctrine does divide, but doctrine also unites. It divides us from those who are trying to deceive naive Christians in order to fill their own bellies. It divides us from those dangerous false teachers, but it also unites. It unites us to one another, and it unites by defining our doctrinal purity. It unites by defining what it is that we will unite under. We unite under the Bible. We unite under the gospel, biblical gospel. We, under, we, we unite under the essentials of orthodox biblical Christianity. And in fact, we could, we, we could actually say doctrine unites by dividing. Doctrine unites us by drawing a line of doctrinal division. Because unity without doctrine is false unity. It's not real unity. But unity defined by doctrinal purity is what we're aiming at. Doctrine for the sake of unity is Paul's aim for the believers in Rome. And it is God's aim for us. Doctrine for the sake of unity. Now I want to close with verse 20 where Paul gives us one promise. So in verse 17, we have the two commands for the church with respect to false teachers, that we should look out for them. And then when we identify them because of their doctrine, we're to avoid them, we're to separate from them. And then in verses 18 through 19, we had the three reasons why this is so important, because the motive of the false teachers is self-serving, the method that they employ is deception, and because this methodology of deception works on those who are naive, and so don't be naive, instead be wise as to what is true and right and good. But now in verse 20, we have one promise, a promise of victory. Verse 20 says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So in our battle against the forces of evil, particularly the forces of evil, false teaching, we are reminded that the victory is already won. We are embattled against an enemy who has already been defeated, whose fate has already been sealed. It was sealed at the crucifixion and the resurrection. After Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, the Lord God pronounced curses on the woman and curses on the man, but he also pronounced a curse on the serpent, Satan. And God says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, he pronounces this curse on the Satan, and he says this, I will put enmity between you speaking to the serpent, between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he, who is the offspring of Eve, he shall bruise your head, speaking of the serpent, and you, serpent, shall bruise his heel. Bible scholars point to this, and they call this the proto-euangelion, the first gospel, or the good news beforehand. The good news before there was good news. This is the first messianic prophecy of Jesus in the Old Testament. 
God promises that there is one who will come from the seed of the woman who would bruise the head or crush the head of the serpent. And the serpent would bruise his heel. The bruising of his heel is prophetic of the crucifixion. And the bruising of the head of the serpent is a reference to the ultimate destruction of our enemy, Satan, when he is thrown into the lake of fire at the end. And it's synonymous with what Paul says here in verse 20, that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. This prophecy was fulfilled at the crucifixion and the resurrection, or at least we could say that's where Satan was defeated, where his fate was sealed. But there is coming a day in the future when that enemy will be finally and ultimately and completely vanquished. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 25. For he, speaking of Christ, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And Paul means to encourage his readers with these words by saying that this ultimate destruction of the enemy of man will happen soon. And we're to find encouragement in that as well. As we battle against the forces of evil, may we be encouraged to know that our enemy will be finally and completely vanquished. And relatively speaking, that will happen soon. So church, two commands, three reasons, and one promise of victory. I pray that we would take our unity so seriously that we treasure our doctrinal purity. Let's pray.